Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Invested Investor podcast. This week, I'm sat next to Alexander Slay. With a background in economics and modern history, Alex is currently the investment director at Newable, a leading financial services provider to UK-based SMEs. Newable Private Investing, part of Newable, connects innovating, fast-growing technology companies to equity finance. So you've got a very economic-focused CV, does finance and investing run in the family? So it's a funny story, actually. My uh, dad is a lawyer and he's a senior partner at a major law firm up in uh, Glasgow. And I remember when I was younger, speaking to him about careers and where one goes after a uh, university. And my dad said to me, son, if you like fighting with clients every day, go into law. But I don't think that's you. So, yeah, I think you're someone that's more entrepreneurial, wants to be creative. And so have you thought about uh, venture capital? And, you know, I kind of looked into it and thought that sounds very interesting and uh, took it from there. Oh, brilliant. So he was a big influence on your decision then, obviously. He was a big influence on my decision. Did he have a financial background or he just said kind no, of explore the options? He had a number of venture capital clients and... I would ask him about, you know, the ideas and entrepreneurs he was working with. I was always very enthused and interested in that particular subject. And so I guess it kind of went from there. So how did you come about becoming investment director at the London Business Angels? And let's, let's hear a little bit about London Business Angels and how it transitioned to become what is now Newable. When I left university, I started off in the city as a TMT analyst. So one of the guys up at kind of seven o'clock in the morning doing research on all sorts of tech-related companies. At the time, uh, Monetize was a big one. That was the darling of the city. So I knew lots about mobile payments, etc. My then boss was a pretty well-known chap in the city. He'd been ex-head of research at Morgan Stanley. And about 18 months into my stint in the city, my then boss and I got talking about entrepreneurial ideas. We figured there was an issue within the provision of rural broadband because in 2011, you had 12 million homes without access to decent broadband. You know, and as we know, broadband is kind of the fourth utility and we figured we could do something about it. So we set up a venture and we tried to create financial packages that would allow communities to improve their broadband. We did that for a period of time. The bank of mum and dad ran out of money <laughs> uh, relatively quickly. And I knew I wanted to combine my financial interests and my entrepreneurial interests. And in the process of trying to raise capital for that venture, I came across London Business Angels. And I met the CEO of London Business Angels. We had a great conversation. And I think, you know, serendipity is a big part of life. 
we got talking about my idea and I think the thrust was, Alex, I'm not sure this is going to be a winner, but actually, you know, I'm looking for someone to come in alongside me and help grow this business. And I joined London Business Angels at the back end of 2011. And over a period of time, we grew that business to become one of the leading, if not the leading angel investment networks in the UK. Okay. So how many angels did you have on the books? Whenever I get asked this question, there are kind of two answers. There are, how many angels do you have in your database? Yeah. And, you know, that was in the thousands. Okay. And then how many of those angels are active, seeking to make investments at any one point in time? The answer was somewhere between four and 500, of which around 20% of those could be regarded as being really active in the the sense that they would come along to the pitch events, come along to all the syndication meetings, were happy to go on the board of a company and, in effect, lead an investment. Okay. What were the London Business Angels at that time investing in? London Business Angels has always had a generalist technology focus. So, you know, primarily we looked at healthcare and life sciences. We looked at space technology. We looked at electronics automation. We looked at various platforms, some e-commerce, and our general sectors of interest were determined by the composition of our investor base, you know, because we tried to find companies ultimately that we thought could be of interest to that investor base. So when did Newble come along and when was that transition? In September 2016, Anthony, my then boss, and I were talking about ways in which we could grow London Business Angels. And we were very fortunate to engage with a chap called Hitesh Thakra, who'd been one of our long-standing angel investors. But he'd seen an opportunity to bring more industrialization, a more professional approach to angel investment. And he, in effect, joined our team. And we went off to build what we called Scale Up Fund One, which was a fund aiming to invest in companies that had de-research technology, but needed some capital to scale up their commercial operations. And we put that together, but in December 16, we kind of realized that to take the business to the next level, we needed more resource, more infrastructure, more investment. And I guess me being a a tight Scotsman and Anthony being a chartered accountant (laughs) meant that we'd always run London Business Angels in a very prudent way. But, you know, in order for it to really realize its true growth potential, we knew we had to do something a little bit outside the box. Yeah. In parallel to those conversations, we were talking to Newable about what more we could be doing with them. And it's like all conversations that kind of morphed into, actually, we quite like you. Would you like to be part of the Newable stable? And we think what you guys are doing is interesting. And we think we have the oomph, the kind of general size to take your business to the next level. And so it was a meeting of minds in many ways for a couple of months over February 17 until the end of March 17. It was pretty crazy because when you're approaching the end of tax year, trying to get a number of deals done, plus trying to sell a business, you don't get much sleep. Yeah. But, you know, it was a great experience. And I think in hindsight, it was the, absolutely the right thing to do. London Business Angels then became Newable Private Investing. 
Yeah. Has it been quite a smooth transition? Is it just kind of followed on from what you were going, just with a bit more resources? In, in many ways, London Business Angels was an entrepreneurial company. It was started in 2009, and you know it, it had grown organically. At the point of acquisition, I think we had five, five or so full-time employees, but we'd built quite a nice business, and you know we're able to make it attractive enough for someone to actually acquire it. When you talk to entrepreneurs about going through an acquisition, what happens after? It's all very exciting, but it takes a while for you to get into the rhythm of the new place. And I think what happened the first six months was a cultural shift in the sense that you have to let go of certain things. So, for example, you know, I used to look after the finances of the London Business Angels and I had to learn to entrust the finance team <laughs> to look after that which is now great, you know, doing BAT returns was the bane of my life at one point in time. (laughs) So I'm perfectly happy about that. But we had to shift the mindset to one where we wanted to really focus on the bits that matter within our business. And that's about providing entrepreneurs with the capsule and the value add and the services that go around that to get from where they are today to a series A ready points in a 12 to 18 month period. Okay, that's quite a good lead on to what actual renewable private investing does. And like I asked with London Business Angels, who you invest in and what your key targets are. Where we focus on is post-seed to pre-series A stage. And when I was at business school, there was a great book by a guy called Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm. And in that, Moore talks about the difference between early adopters and mainstream adopters and how there's a chasm you have to cross to get from early adopters to mainstream adopters. And the same applies in the world of venture capital, where early adopters will try your technology or, okay, if there are flaws in it, it doesn't work, they'll accept that. Yeah. But, you know, when you get to mainstream adopters, you know, the product has to be absolutely right because you get one chance and if it doesn't work, they're never going to come back to you. And to get from that early adopter point to that mainstream adopter point, we think you need between one and a half million pounds to two million pounds of what we call validation capital. And that sum is generally too large for angels to bring to the party as a syndicate. Yeah. But the companies are too mature for Series A funds, institutional funds, to be able to invest with conviction. And so we provide capital and services that enable companies to cross that chasm, if you like, and get from a post-seed point to a Series A point. And so my key metric at the moment is how many of the companies that we have invested in have been able to get to a Series A ready point. Doesn't mean they'll take Series A capital, but if they wanted to take Series A capital, how many of them could actually do that? And, you know, that's very much what we were looking for at the moment. Are there any companies that we would have heard of that you've helped out? In terms of our portfolio, it's pretty big. We have 50 or so portfolio companies within our funds. We have another 20 or so co-investments we look after on behalf of government co-investment funds. And, you know, many of those are household names in the venture industry. So, for example, Hopster is a leading player in the kids' gamification space. Benevo is a leading player in the relocation space. Cognizum is a leading player in the B2B marketing technology space. So we have some companies that are pretty prominent in the venture capital industry within our stable at the moment. How big is your portfolio, your personal one? Do you oversee a set number of these companies? 
Yeah, so our model has always been about investing as part of a syndicate. Yeah. And so, you know, to be on the board of 50 companies is not something my wife would like very much. <laughs> so, you know, we rely very heavily on finding people with domain expertise to sit in these boards and effectively provide the governance and controls that we as investors expect, but also to provide the value add that the companies need in terms of opening doors to customers providing the credibility when the companies are seeking further rounds of funding. So in your eyes, what is the ideal size portfolio for an investor or a company like yourselves? For a private angel investor looking to invest in this asset class, I always say two things to them. One is have a plan. Before you get carried away and excited by all the great ideas that you're seeing, think carefully about how many investments you want to make how much capital you want to deploy into those companies and over what period of time. I would always say to an investor looking to invest in this asset class, make sure you have a portfolio of at least eight companies, if not close to 10, and make sure you have enough capacity to follow on in those investments. I generally say, you know, a kind of minimum one to two ratio, but ideally a one to three ratio. So for every pound you invest initially, hold back three pounds for following runs. Obviously, you've got a team here, but still talking about that, how do you successfully manage such a large portfolio? Every six months, we have a big job of reporting on our portfolio companies to the investors in our various funds. And that requires us to meet all the lead investors on the companies, as well as the CEOs of those companies. We have quarterly information rights on almost all of our companies. So we do get the updates, et cetera, and we do get a sense of what's happening. And because as Newable, we can provide a range of services such as office space, grant funding, export advice to the underlying portfolio companies, that means you know they have an interest in keeping us posted on what's happening going forwards. In some of our seed investments, where they are at a very early stage and need a bit of guidance and support, we do have the right to appoint an observer onto the board. Let's just move on to the entrepreneur, the founders. What are the key characteristics you look for when entrepreneurs are pitching? So this is a great question. What's the key characteristics that make a successful entrepreneur? You know, I think there are many ingredients that make a successful entrepreneur. I think to start with, they need to have a vision, need to be resilient, need to be inspiring and they need to be able to get going when the times are tough. And actually, they need to be able to let go as well, in the sense that you know, the skill set you need to take a business from one to 10 employees is entirely different from the skill set you need to take a business from 20 to 100 employees. And you know, different again when you get from 100 to 1,000 employees. And the best entrepreneurs are the ones that realize that and are able to step down or move aside at the right time. Or maybe learn and kind of transition into the role. How often do you see that though with your companies that they do have to step down for the good of the company? So there's a great example of a company we have in our portfolio. It's a Welsh-based company in the collagen manufacturing space. They take jellyfish from Pembroke Bay and process that into novel best-in-class collagen great company and you know we made investments in that company initially three years ago 
And the founder is, you know, a research machine. He is phenomenal in terms of thinking about ideas, in terms of novel concepts. And as part of the initial investments, we can invest alongside a lead investor from a pharma background who we felt would be able to guide the CEO and help him commercialize the business. About 18 months ago, we completed a second round. And as part of that round, the lead investor actually stepped up to become CEO of the company. Oh, wow. And the initial founder moved over to a kind of CSO, CRO position. And that has worked wonderfully well because the commercialization journey and the plans around that are very robust and the amount of innovation now coming through because the CSO is able to focus on that without having to worry about the perhaps more bureaucratic elements of running the business is great. That's obviously a success story, but have you ever had any where the CEO has been extremely reluctant to do this? It happens all the time. And, you know, from an entrepreneur's perspective, they have to think long and hard about whether taking on external equity investment is right for them. Because when you take on that investment, the game changes. You're no longer just answerable to your better half. You're also answerable to external shareholders who have given you money and expect you to execute a plan with that money. And therefore, there is significantly more pressure. And it means that, you know, you can't just run your business on the basis that it's a lifestyle business. It suddenly becomes something you have to grow from standard start to you know, five, six X or more. Let's just talk about pitches. And you must see a lot of business plans, a lot of pitches in the last few years. What's the most memorable pitch that you've seen? Not necessarily good, maybe bad. And just kind of why? Oof, that's a tough question. Because uh, every year, you know, we're seeing upwards of 2000 pitches per annum. And, you know, I'm always very empathetic to anyone who's an entrepreneur. Having had a brief stint myself, I know that there are trials and tribulations as a result. And it takes guts and courage, you know, to do that. So, you know, as a matter of course, we always do try and look at pitch decks where possible. The ones that stand out are the ones that really understand the investor story and are able to get across their own credibility, get across the wow factor in their idea, and get across the fact that if you join me on this journey, there is potential for you to make a significant exit in the future. What do you think the biggest challenges are that entrepreneurs face along the journey? Entrepreneurs, by extension, are optimists. They look at the world in a positive light. They want to change behaviours, change practices, disrupt industries. And, you know, the challenge they have is, A, building a team of people around them, B, trying to convince others of the power of their idea, because ultimately investors like to invest with conviction. I think one of the most used phrases in the investment world is, it's too early for us. And the reality is everything is too early until it's too late. And the phrase too early basically means we like what you do, but there aren't enough proof points yet for us to be able to make a decision. And the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs is to be able to accept that rejection and keep moving on unperturbed. Yeah, okay. And what about for investors? What are the biggest challenges that you found as an investor? The challenge with investing in early stage companies is you have asymmetric information. 
when you have incomplete information. And the challenge is understanding exactly the risk you're taking. To use Donald Rumsfeld's infamous term, you have to know the known unknowns and be able to quantify and accept that risk. And that's ultimately a judgment call because at the early stage in particular, you're investing in people and you're investing in their ideas and their ability to execute in their ideas. Yeah. But as a venture capitalist, you've just set up a new fund, for instance, hypothetically, and then you need to take that first plunge. How do you get past that risk? I think for any investor, you need to have A, a process, and B, a clear remit. You know, and you have to be disciplined in your approach to ensuring you stick to that remit. And so, you know, the starting point for us is what is it we're looking for? Well, we're looking for companies that are in that post-seed to pre-series A stage. We're looking for companies that we think have the potential to get to that series A stage. We're looking for companies that can make venture-style returns. There are lots of great companies here in the UK, but only a handful of them are able to make a 10, 20x plus return or indeed become a unicorn. Yeah. And so for us, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at opportunities, going out to events, meeting entrepreneurs, and then triaging those opportunities against our criteria. And when we like something, then it's a case of doing TD, and it's about getting that external validation. It's about speaking to customers. It's about speaking to people in the industry to understand if the solution being developed really solves a clear problem. Do you think there's still an element of luck in there as well? There's a great saying by Gary Player who said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I think that is true in the investment industry. The more diligence you do, the more you're clear on what you're investing in and how you can help the companies, the more likely you are to make decent returns. And I think there's an element of timing as well. I look at some of our portfolio companies, it's taken them six, seven years to really find their feet and product market fit. And the reality is that we invested ahead of the curve. And it's taken a period of time for the curve to catch up. And now those companies are in prime position. Let's just talk about failures. It's a massive part of the industry. It does happen to a lot of startups. You would have had your own. Just tell us a few, you don't need to talk about specific companies, but some stories about failure and why you thought that those companies failed. If I think about Failure, you know, there are a number of reasons why companies fail, but they can generally be distilled, in my opinion, to three key factors. The first is the company failed to find product market fit. And what does that mean? It means that, you know, they didn't have enough cash to be able to hit certain proof points that would enable them to raise a further round of cash, i.e. investors got fatigued. I strongly believe that with infinite resource and an infinite amount of capital. Anyone can ultimately find product market fit. But we live in a society based on scarcity and you know investors invest on the basis that their investment is going to lead to the company hitting certain milestones. And you know sometimes it just doesn't happen. And you know there's a great example of a company based in Cambridge in the ad tech space. The founder was first class, a great entrepreneur. And he worked his heart out to try and make the venture work. But he was just in a very difficult industry, one where you know, there's a lot of inertia, a lot of barriers to change. 
And ultimately, we couldn't make that work. And, you know, that's one of those where you can accept that you made an investment, you knew the risks, it didn't work out, and these things happen. The other two reasons are more to do with people. The first is where finding teams fall out, you know, where there's a difference in opinion. And early stage companies are fragile. And that means, you know, you need the management teams to be fully in sync, in rhythm, and aligned. And where you have a misalignment between them, that leads to problems. And the third reason is a similar one where entrepreneurs and investors fall out or have a misalignment of you and the trust breaks down between them. It's difficult to hear, but obviously it does happen quite often. Yeah, I think the lesson there, Alan, is that for an entrepreneur, when they take on investment, you know, it's not just up to the investor to conduct DD on the entrepreneur. It should be reciprocal and the entrepreneur should be very close up on who they're taking into their company. Do you often find entrepreneurs, some CEOs, for example, that spend too much time chasing money, chasing the next round? The reality is the best way to fund your company is through revenue. Secondly, through grant funding. And then, you know, through finance instruments such as debt or equity. I think what happens is raising equity is seen as a kind of badge of honour in the industry. You know, you see articles in TechCrunch or wherever about a company raising five, ten million pounds. And that's great, but that's the start of the next chapter of a journey. And what I see often is because entrepreneurs work so hard to raise the capital, when it does hit the bank, the next three months, they draw breath. So it's like they've been swimming really hard and then they need to come up for breath just to, you know, take in for a little bit. And then following that kind of three-month hiatus, then things pick up again. So what does the future hold for both you and Newable? When we uh, came on board the Newable ship two years ago, we, all of us, meaning both the Newable team and London Business Angels team, took a view that the early stage investment market is hugely fragmented and, you know, actually both entrepreneurs and investors could benefit from a more professionalized service offering. And two years on from that initial hypothesis, that still holds true. And we are on a mission to become the preeminent provider of capital and value-added services to entrepreneurs that are effectively crossing that chasm that I alluded to earlier. And what does that mean? We are very much uh, working with our angel investors to understand what more we could be doing for them to provide the best-in-class service that they demand from us. We are very much putting lots of time and effort into growing the size of our funds because we know that in order to support entrepreneurs more fully in many ways, we could deploy more capital into their rounds. And we're working with a number of kind of institutional investors to understand what they're looking for at Series A, which will to some extent dictate what we invest in. Because if we can understand what they're looking for now, it means that we can kind of guide the companies that we invest into to move in that direction. I completely agree. Alex, it's been absolutely fantastic. Really insightful to hear from a leading investment director in the UK. And all the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. 
You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.